The thing about being a criminal defense attorney is that you're typically representing someone that has experienced the absolute worst day of their life. Yes, there are clients that are sociopaths who may not consider whatever heinous actions they may have taken to get themselves arrested to be the worst day of their lives. Hell, some, if they are twisted enough, may even enjoy it. But for the vast majority, that is not the case. No, for these folks, there is typically some underlying reason that has driven them to break the law. Whether it be poverty, anger, depression, the need for revenge, the heat of the moment, bad judgment, alcohol or drug use, the folly of youth, or some type of mental issue, there is always an underlying cause. Because never forget, life is brutal. Whatever the cause may be, there is very little room in the criminal statutes that allows for a defense attorney to argue the underlying cause, which may or may not justify their client's actions. If someone is starving, do they not have some sort of justification in stealing a loaf of bread? Maybe in theory, but in the eyes of the law, they do not. Now we have seen recent stories about fathers and mothers that have killed those that have sexually abused their children. And while most of us can relate and maybe even agree with why they did it, there is no room in the law for vigilantism. The expectation, no, the requirement in our society is to go through the criminal justice system, to have faith in the system that it will provide victims with the justice they seek and deserve. As consumers of true crime, we see how often that never ends up happening, which leaves the victims with absolutely no recourse. So in those situations where someone has made the decision to take the law into their own hands, their defense attorney at most can attempt to mitigate their client's actions by trying to get the state's attorney and the court to understand what the root cause of the crime was. But this will not happen during a trial. No, it happens before trial, when the defense attorney and the state's attorney try to work out a plea deal. And it is at this juncture where the defense attorney tries to get the state to understand why their client committed the crime. And they try to come to a consensus as to what is a fair penalty for whatever the underlying crime was. The more violent the offense, the more difficult it is to get the state to move off their initial offers. Because after all, they have victims to answer to. Those same victims that have put their trust in the system to get them justice. And if they don't believe that justice is being served, they will let the state know. The state in turn will discuss the strength and weaknesses of the case with the victim or their family in order to rationalize why any specific plea deal is being offered. And the reality is this, this is how most criminal cases are resolved. According to the Marshall Project, approximately 94% of felony convictions at the state level and 97% of felony convictions at the federal level are the result of a plea bargain. Now, that is easy math. And what that tells you is that actual trials are very, very rare. If you were an avid consumer of true crime documentaries and podcasts, you may be under the mistaken belief that almost every case goes to trial, but that's not the case. It's not even close to being the case. So in those rare circumstances that a case actually goes to trial, it is typically because the defendant is maintaining their innocence 
and they are demanding trial. Now, as a criminal defense attorney, I typically do not ask my client whether or not they committed the crime. I let the discovery, which includes the evidence the state has compiled, dictate what the best route to take is, as far as advising my client. If there are mountains of evidence against them, whether they are claiming innocence or not, I am obligated to inform them of what their chances at trial are and what their chances of overcoming the evidence is. If it's a weak case and the evidence does not rise to the level that the state is going to be able to meet their burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, then I tell my client that. Ultimately, the decision to plead guilty or not lies entirely within the discretion of the defendant. My job is to give them as much information as possible to help them make that decision. If they decide to plead, well, then I go to work on trying to get the best offer from the state possible. One major X factor that exists is with regards to the collection of evidence. If the cops have done their job properly and have legitimately collected overwhelming amounts of evidence against my client, well, then I'm going to let my client know that there is no valid motion to be filed. Therefore, the evidence, more likely than not, is coming in. Now, based on those startling statistics of how few cases actually go to trial, two things become very clear. One, that the cops usually get the right person. And for the most part, they collect the evidence within the constraints that the Constitution requires. If they don't, motions to suppress evidence and or statements are filed, or motions to quash search and or arrest warrants are filed due to the lack of probable cause. These motions are basically many trials where the cops are cross-examined by defense counsel in order to determine whether or not they followed the law while investigating the crime. In essence, what defense attorneys are doing is policing the police. If the cops are found to have violated the fourth, fifth, or sixth amendment during their investigation, then there is a great likelihood that certain evidence will be suppressed by the judge via a motion to suppress. And this is done for the express purpose of giving the Constitution teeth, meaning that the next time that that cop has an encounter with a suspect, that they will toe the line and follow the law because that cop now has a clear understanding that if they don't, the evidence they collect will be tossed out and they will not be able to use it to secure a conviction. Now, you've heard me take great umbrage to the use of the term technicality in reference to evidence being suppressed because it is anything but that. What it is, in fact, is a defense attorney going into a court of law to protect all of our constitutional rights against governmental tyranny. Without that occurring, our society in very short order would be vastly different and much, much more unpleasant than it is now. So. If a guilty offender may walk on occasion due to evidence being suppressed, don't blame a defense attorney for doing their job, which ultimately benefits all of us, but instead, place the blame squarely where it belongs, which is on the cop, who is trained to know better for failing to follow the law with respect to the Constitution. Now, if you were finding this a bit dry, well, Darren and I apologize, but you know that we here at Defense Diaries are all about giving you the straight dope. Because all of us, for as long as I can remember, 
as consumers of true crime, have been told all of the stories that we have heard over the years, almost exclusively from the perspective of law enforcement and prosecutors, which is fine to a certain extent. But to get the full story on any case, we need to hear it from all perspectives, because only then will you be fully informed. That's why we are doing what we do. Not to necessarily change your minds about things, but instead to arm you with a different perspective, which may cause you to think about something in a different way than you are accustomed. Then Darren and I consider our pod to have accomplished its mission. So what about defending a client who absolutely, unequivocally, and without hesitation maintains their innocence? Well, first, as defense counsel, you dig into the discovery. And if it appears that the state has collected some pretty compelling evidence, you then tell them what they have on them. Yet, they remain undeterred in proclaiming their innocence. Now, can you imagine the pressure of handling a case like that? The weight of the world rests on your shoulders. Your client's freedom, liberty, and in some circumstances, their life rests squarely on your shoulders. Now, my father always told me that the absolute worst client to have is the innocent person because their lives rest in your hands. And if you shit the bed at trial and they go down for a crime that they didn't commit, you have to live with that forever. So are you curious about what it would be like to defend such a person? Well, you're in luck because Anthony Garcia was one of those people. And we are getting dangerously close to the point in the story when Allison, Bob Sr., and myself are on the clock for what would turn out to be the most pressure-filled and gut-wrenching experience of our lives. So buckle up, buckle up. Bob Mata, and this is episode 19. Matthews, everything around me. We left off last episode with Anthony Garcia continuing to run into problem after problem at Creighton. As each passing day goes by, he seems to dig himself deeper and deeper into a hole, which it seems unlikely that he will be able to climb out of. Now, we spent some time examining the records from Creighton regarding various incidents that occurred between Garcia and Butra and Garcia and Bill Hunter and with the horribly mishandled autopsy. We also took into account that these records that we are reviewing with you were certainly prepared with the goal of placing Garcia in the worst light possible so as to shield Creighton from potential liability down the road in the event that Garcia is terminated. Now, that is not to say that there are not truths contained within these reports, but we are merely pointing out that we are, for the most part, getting only Creighton's perspective, namely Butra and Hunter's accounts of what is happening. 
We have heard Garcia complain vehemently about Boutra's treatment of him nearly every time they are in the same room. Now, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. So it matters not if Boutra believes that the way she treats Garcia and other residents is well within the realm of reasonable. It sounds as if her teaching style is to berate and demean residents when they are not equipped with the knowledge that she believes they should possess at any given time in order to incentivize them to learn the materials to avoid her wrath. That style may in fact be effective with some students. Others, it may offend beyond words. Remember, we are talking about men and women that have made their way through medical school. And it's not unreasonable for them to feel as if they should be treated as professionals with some modicum of respect. So the relationship between these two people is hard to decipher without having the benefit of having witnessed some of these encounters firsthand. It doesn't appear from the records that Hunter or any other members of the administration investigated Garcia's claims of mental abuse. If it happened, there certainly wasn't reports created wherein Boutra's behavior was either confirmed or denied. It's likely that this fact may be the root cause of Garcia's increasingly insolent behavior. One thing that we should note is that it is never reported that Garcia flashed any violent tendencies, nor did he make threats of violence to anyone, including Boutra. His threats laid firmly within the auspices of the courts of law in the form of civil suits. And all of it, all of Garcia's time at Creighton remains a bit of a mystery. And we will continue to delve into his time there, but that's gonna happen at a later date. Now, instead, we are jumping forward in time from 2001 back to 2011. And we're gonna find out what else Omaha PD has learned about the Russian. The last we heard, he had hoodwinked one of his trainees into muling knives and cleavers across the Canadian border under the guise that he was trying to avoid duty taxes and that Matthews, his trainee, learned of the FBI coming to Calgary to question the Russian about a double homicide that had taken place in Omaha back in 2008. And he knew that the Russian had lived in and attended Creighton University in Omaha before those homicides occurred. To say that this information spooked Matthews is an understatement. He was officially on high alert as far as the Russian goes, yet he knew the man was still integral in getting him assigned back to Calgary to work full-time as he was assigned to work in Dallas in June of 2009. It's an uncomfortable situation to be in, to say the least. So let's see how it plays out, as it's now time to dig in. Harout continues listening as Matthews explains what occurs with the Russian over the next several months. While in Dallas, Matthews sat for and passed an American credential exam in anatomic pathology. At the time that Matthews learned that he had passed, he reached out to the Russian to advise him that he too should have taken the same exam. 
The Russian then advises him that he knows, but that he didn't take it. The Russian tells him that he is going to take the exam in October. Matthews remains outwardly supportive of him, all the while maintaining what he believes is a safe distance. Matthews then advises Harout that he would come back to Calgary from time to time, and during these times, the Russian would ask him to borrow his study materials and glass slides, which Matthews agreed to provide. October comes and goes, and the Russian still does not write the exam. The Russian took the exam in December of 2009. In mid-December, Matthews tells Harout that the Russian had called him to inform him that he had failed his exam. Matthews, in turn, expresses his condolences. And during that conversation, that the Russian ended the call because he was receiving a call from his girlfriend, who was also Russian. Later that same evening, Matthews receives another call from the Russian. He reluctantly answers the call. He claims that he can immediately tell that the Russian is intoxicated, and he informs Matthews that his girlfriend has dumped him. Harout asks about the Russian's demeanor during this call, and he is told that the Russian had gone into an absolute tirade against women and had begun talking in a hypersexual manner. He says that the Russian tells him that she was a great lay. This was terrible for his sex life. Matthews tells Harout that he was disgusted by the conversation, and further, he relays that conversation to his boss. Over the next couple of weeks, the Russian is under intense pressure to make decisions within the department, and he was failing miserably in doing so, and overall was performing poorly. Matthews was aware that the Russian, in his current state of mind, was not going to be able to pass any exams, and he advises him to get more training in Texas and Colorado. The Russian listens and takes a hard pass on following Matthews' advice. As the story continues, 2009 gives way to 2010. Matthews reports that the Russian was growing more and more irritable. He describes a call from the Russian around this time frame, wherein he accuses Matthews of orchestrating the Russian's removal from office. Matthews told the Russian that that was absurd, and he was not even assigned to the Calgary office. Yet, the Russian continued to blame him for his poor performance claiming that Matthews was not tutoring him enough. Matthews reminded him that, you're my superior. The conversation becomes more and more heated and degenerates into a yelling match with the Russian screaming at Matthews as he was sick of watching him succeed with his fancy cars, his fancy clothing, and his house on a hill. And here's a pause for a worthy cause. Harout listens intently, continuing to jot all of this down. At this point, Matthews feels the need to justify his financial success as he tells Harout that he does in fact drive an infinity and he does wear nice clothes, but that there is no reason that the Russian should know that he lives on a hill, which he in fact does. Matthews tries to talk the Russian off the ledge and tells him that his recent failure of the exam is a tragedy. At this point in the conversation, Matthews tells Harout that the Russian tells him verbatim that he does not understand tragedy and that it would be a real shame if he and his wife experienced 
tragedy. Matthews took this as a direct threat and promptly ended that conversation. Harout asks Matthews what his next move was, and he tells him that he immediately calls the department chief medical examiner and gives him a blow-by-blow of the entire conversation that just took place. Both he and his boss were decidedly uncomfortable with the conversation that had just occurred. Well, what did your boss do about it? Harout asks. He did nothing, Matthews replies. He's a non-confrontational person and he told me he wasn't sure how to handle it. Well, what did you do then? Harout inquires. Well, I then called the chief medical examiner, my boss's boss. Well, everybody in the department's boss who had not been informed about the FBI's visit with the Russian. Chief M.E. then told me that since the conversation with the Russian had not taken place while either of us was on duty and the call took place over personal phones, that the government was not in a position to do anything about it. Matthews then huffs audibly and tells her out that the M.E. had advised him to try and find a soft solution to the problem with the Russian. He was left stunned. Wow, I guess it doesn't surprise me too much as all this occurred off hours. My department, they'd do the same thing if I had to dust up off duty. Route replies. Yeah, well, I wasn't happy about the entire situation. But in February or March of 2010, I made a trip back to Calgary and met with the Russian in a public place. And it was a walking path to be exact. And even though the ME had told me to no longer teach the Russian, out of pure self-preservation, I once again expressed my dismay with regards to him failing the exam and offered to provide the Russian with study materials. At the end of the day, I had supplied the Russian with five to 600 teaching slides to help him study for the exams. After that, I had zero contact with him until June of 2010. What happened in June? Harout asks. Well, the best way to describe it is that the Russian was upset with my mere existence. There was a confrontation at a meeting where he began berating me about where I was sitting at the meeting. He was irate, so much so that he ended up filing a complaint against me. He ultimately dropped the complaint, but it was crystal clear to me that this man was holding a grudge. Yeah, he doesn't appear to like you very much, Harad observes. Exactly. Well, at the end of June, I wrote the Russian a letter asking him to return my slides. At first, he told me, yeah, no problem, I'll get them back to you. But then later, basically tells me to pound sand and refuses to return them. At that point, I had to go to the university to have them intervene in order to get the slides back. It was an incredibly frustrating experience. All of it. Anything else of note go down with the Russian? Harout inquires. Well, yes. A few months later, several items went missing from my office. I obviously immediately suspected the Russian. I began quietly investigating and ultimately discovered that I, in fact, was correct. The Russian had taken my property. I had to put a padlock on my office in order to keep this man out of my office. He continued to struggle in the job as well. He failed the exam a second time, and then he lied to the government about it, when he took it a third time and failed yet again. 
At that point, the government got wise to his shenanigans, and in December of 2010, they finally made the decision to terminate him in what was one of the best days of my life. In early January, he was officially fired and was escorted from the building. Now, I want to make it abundantly clear to you, detective, that every single person in that department was at risk with this man in the building. I would literally have nightmares about him completely losing it and taking it out on all of us. Harout thought deeply about the conversation, but could not determine if the Russian was as terrifying as this guy was making him out to be. However, this wasn't the first time that people that had worked with the Russian had indicated that they were afraid of him. Harout responds, Okay, well, this information has been helpful, sir. Is there anything else that you can think of while you have me on the line? Matthews takes a moment to ponder the question and then begins stating some other unusual aspects about the Russian. He tells Harout that he kept strange hours when he knew him and that he would make up elaborate stories to make people look bad. He claimed that it wasn't just him that was uncomfortable with him, but it was the entire staff that felt that way. And that at one point in March of 2009, the Russian had made a statement about how much damage a steak knife could do to somebody. Hmm, interesting. Matthews continues, I also caught the Russian spying on me when we were at a pathology study course, which I thought was incredibly bizarre. The bottom line, detective, is that I am afraid of him, and I am sincerely concerned that he will blame me for his failures here. I'm not the only one either. Ask the program director. He'll tell you the same thing. Harau took it all in and asked, have you had any contact with him since he was fired? No, I haven't. I know that the Russian doesn't have a phone or a computer since he was terminated. Do you know where he's currently living? No, I don't. I just know that he was driving a dark-colored four-door sedan that had illegal plates. Harout felt as if he needed to dig a bit deeper. What he was getting from this guy is that we very well may be dealing with a disturbed individual. So Mr. Matthews, I've read several articles about the Russian testifying in court in criminal cases up here. Do you know anything about any of these cases? Well, yes. I mean, that's part of the job, is he was the ME on many homicides, which would require him to testify in court as to the cause of death. I can tell you this, the Russian always appeared to me to be giddy when he was observing autopsies that involved stab wounds. Giddy? Repeated her out thinking that he wished that this individual had never heard about himself and Robitaille coming up to question the Russian. He can't help but think that possibly this man may be exaggerating a bit in order to make us take a much closer look at the Russian. Yes, Matthews replies. Typically, most pathologists are very clinical when performing or observing an autopsy. This man seemed to be enjoying himself during the autopsies of stabbing victims. It was unsettling, to say the least. Can you give me a bit more detail, sir? Harout asks. Yes, I can give you a particular instance. This was an open, unsolved case that involved a Filipino immigrant who was viciously stabbed 
and had a knife wound through the ear and was protruding out of the back of his head. That knife, by the way, was not recovered after the autopsy occurred. The Russian took what I considered to be a sick interest in the case, and I found it incredibly disturbing to see someone take such glee in these types of wounds. I mean, I do the same thing for a living and have never taken pleasure when examining a brutal murder. It's, it's just off. There's something wrong with him, I'm telling you. Okay, is there anything else that you have for me, Mr. Matthews? No, sir, that's all I can recollect at the present time. And I hope that you understand that I have no axe to grind with this man. I have just been constantly thinking about him and his behavior while he was here. And I would never be able to live with myself if I were to find out that he was in fact responsible for what happened in Omaha and I had done or said nothing. That's why I contacted you. Harout thanks Matthews and terminates the call. Matthews couldn't help but feel that the cop was skeptical about everything that he had just reported. But all of it was true. Every bit of it. The Russian was a very dangerous man. He could feel it in his gut. Harout hangs up the phone and can't help but feel frustrated. He is just unable to ascertain whether or not this guy was on the up and up or is just trying to jam up this guy that gave him such a hard time when he worked with him. One thing that he knew for certain is that nothing Matthews provided him with got OPD any closer to making an arrest. It certainly was disturbing background information and did nothing to make Harout feel any less convinced that the Russian could be a suspect. But damn it, none of what he just heard was evidence of what happened here in Omaha. The Russian made no admissions to Matthews because if he had, Matthews would have for damn sure told them. Seven days later, on January 27th, 2011, Harout's phone rings. It's Matthews, again. How can I help you, sir? Harout asks politely. Yes, detective, I felt it necessary to contact you to inform you that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police just contacted me about the Russian. They advised me of their deep concern with regards to the Russian. You do realize that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is the highest level of Canada's law enforcement, right? Harout indicates that he was aware of that fact. Okay, well, this Mountie told me that the Russian was the subject of other investigations in Canada and that they believe that the Russian poses a security threat to me here in Canada. I'm going to give the Mountie your number so that he can contact you. Harout tells Matthews, that's fine, and terminates the call. On the following day, Staff Sergeant Steve Burton, who was a forensic pathologist for the Behavioral Science Unit of the Calgary Police, calls her out. He explains that he's been contacted by a Dr. Matthews with regard to the Russian, and he reiterates what Matthews had told him a week earlier. Burton tells her out that there were other issues with the Russian that were also under investigation, primarily that they believe that he was possibly fabricating autopsy files in Canada. Harout asks Burton if the Royal Canadian Mounted Police 
was involved with the case, and Burton tells him that he didn't believe so, and that it was being handled exclusively by the Calgary PD. Burton goes on to inform her out that the Russian is also being investigated for fraud and child support, and that they are now looking into the claims by Dr. Matthews. Burton asks Harout for some background on the Omaha case, which Harout supplies. He also informs him that the Russian is only a person of interest based on a tip and was not actively being sought as a suspect in the case. Burton tells Harout that he understands and that if they uncover anything of potential interest, that they'll reach out. The call is terminated. Harout makes his way to Lieutenant Kanger's office, who is in charge of the double homicide at this juncture, and briefs him on what was learned over the past week. Kanger digests the information that Harout supplies him and thinks enough of it to send Harout on an assignment to Pittsburgh. Now, there are two objectives. One, he wants Harout to obtain documents from the Allegheny County Medical Examiner's Office related to the week of the homicide and to determine if records exist indicating whether or not the Russian was actually working on March 13th of 2008. And two, there's additional evidence the Russian possibly had dated a female by the name of Penelope, who he wants her out to interview to see what she has to say about her relationship with the Russian. Before leaving for Pittsburgh, Harout does some research and is able to locate a last known address for Penelope. He's able to obtain this document from the Silverhawk Security Company, who, at this point in the investigation, is assisting the Omaha PD. Harout is also given a point of contact with the Pittsburgh PD, a gentleman named Lieutenant Krauss, that will help assist with the assignment upon Harout's arrival. On Sunday, February 20th, 2011, Harout boards a flight to Pittsburgh with the intention on conducting interviews on the 21st and 22nd of February. On Monday morning, February 21st, Harout and another Omaha police officer arrive at the Pittsburgh police headquarters and meet with the aforementioned Lieutenant Krauss. Krauss supplies Harout with additional addresses, and by 10.24 a.m., Harout arrives at the Allegheny County medical examiner's office. Unfortunately, Harout is completely unaware that it's President's Day and the ME's office is closed for observance of the holiday. Oops. Oops. At that point, Harout pivots and decides to hit the last known address of the Russian's girlfriend during the time that he lived in Pittsburgh. They arrive at the secure department building, which also houses a local newspaper business in a storefront space on the first floor. Harout walks in and inquires with an employee of the business if she is familiar with a female who may live in the building named Penelope. The employee who wants to remain anonymous confirms that Penelope is a resident and that she drives a blue Hyundai, which is typically parked in front of the building if she's home. The employee also makes Harout aware of another secured entrance in the building. Harout heads outside, but doesn't see the blue Hyundai. He finds his way to the secured entrance and proceeds to ring all the bells in the entire building in order to gain entrance and so that he can leave a card outside of Penelope's door. However, not one resident answers the buzzer. Harout is foiled again. 
the trip to Pittsburgh had started rather inauspiciously. At around 11.30 a.m., Harout makes his way to a steel company that Penelope is alleged to have worked for. Upon entry, a security guard confirms that Penelope does, in fact, work at the facility. The security guard calls HR and informs them that there's an officer there to speak with Penelope. Shortly thereafter, a man named Jonathan enters the lobby to speak with Harout. Harout advises them that he's there to talk with Penelope, and he is told that she does work there, but that she is subcontracted through another business, and that she was currently off-site. Harout leaves his card with Jonathan and asks him to provide it to Penelope so she can contact him. Harout waits out the rest of the day, and Penelope never contacts him. He ends up driving over to her apartment again. There's still no car, and no one lets him in the building again. This entire day has been a bust. He goes back to the hotel and calls it a night. At 9.15 a.m. on Tuesday the 22nd, Harout and his partner make their way back to the medical examiner's office. At that point, they are met by an admin for the pathology department named Annie. Harout asks her if she's familiar with the Russian. She tells him that she is, as she's been dealing with other agencies and reporters who have requested documents from their office. Harout advises her that Omaha PD had previously sent a subpoena for records. Annie goes and grabs the file. Contained within said file is Omaha PD's subpoena. She picks it up and reviews it. She tells Harout that three documents had been sent to OPD previously. Harout verifies that he, in fact, did receive those documents. However, none of the documents that were sent, which included a schedule and two other documents, were particularly useful in verifying whether or not the Russian was actually physically at work on March 13th of 2008. Harout inquires whether there are autopsy reports of any kind that show who actually took part in the autopsies on the date in question. Annie tells Harout, yes, there would be reports of this type, but in order to get them, an additional subpoena specifically requesting the documents will have to be filed. Harout is incredibly irritated at this point. He desperately wants to tell Annie to blow it out of her ass, but he thinks better of it. Instead, he summons his partner and they race back to the hotel with Harout muttering to himself for the entirety of the drive. Back at the hotel, Harout fires up his laptop and prepares a new subpoena directed to the Allegheny ME's office. Within the subpoena, he specifically requests, as soon as reasonably possible, all pertinent records related to the autopsies performed at the Allegheny Medical Examiner's office, including, but not limited to, documentation showing all persons present at the time of the autopsies for the dates of March 10th of 08 through March 15th. Harout shoots the subpoena via email over to the county attorney's office, and Don Klein, the actual county attorney, reviews, signs, and sends it back to Harout. Harout then forwards a copy to Annie at just shy of 1 p.m. As soon as Harout hits send, he jumps back into his rental with his partner, and they make their way back to the ME's office. They arrive at 1.11 p.m. and are once again greeted by Annie. She lets Harout know that she received the subpoena 
and she has conducted the search for documents. She begins handing him the documents. The first document that she hands him appears to be a timesheet related to the Russian. Harout observes that the sheet is an attendance calendar for 2008, and in reference to the dates in question, namely March 10th through the 14th, that there is an X placed by each of those dates. Harout asks Annie what exactly those X signify. Annie tells him that it means that the secretary looked at the schedule and saw that the Russian was on the schedule and thusly had marked him present. Harout asks Annie if this in any way, shape, or form can be cross-checked with anything in order to ensure that the Russian was actually in attendance. Annie tells Harout that there is nothing that exists that she is aware of that could verify that the Russian was physically present. This sheet indicates that he was there on those dates. Harout is not satisfied and asks for what else she has. And he then hands him a calendar for the month of March, 2008. Harout has seen this document before, as it was one of the documents sent via the original subpoena. He recalls that the dates of the 11th through the 14th all had the Russian's name listed along with several other doctors. He asks Annie, what exactly does this calendar indicate? She tells him that the names listed are the parties who were supposed to be conducting the autopsies on the dates in question. She also tells Harout that because the Russian was a fellow, that if he was actually present on those dates, that he would have been required to attend the autopsies. None of this is helping, Harout thinks to himself. And then he asks, could he have been doing some other tasks other than an autopsy if he was present on those dates? No, if he was here, he would have been in the autopsies, Annie replies. I can tell you this, detective. There was no tracking system in place to indicate if a doctor had traded days with another doctor. And as far as the 12th through the 14th of March, I am not able to say definitively that the Russian was present for any of the autopsies on any of those days. Harout is now fully engaged in this conversation and eagerly wants to dig into all of the documents that she has pulled for him. She next hands him various documents which relate to autopsies performed on March 7th through the 16th. What are these? We refer to those as face sheets and they provide the names of the doctors who took part in the autopsies, as well as anyone else that was present in the autopsy rooms, including technicians and photographers. Those sure seem like documents that would indicate whether or not the Russian was present on the 13th, Harout thinks to himself. Harout at that point starts to cross-reference the face sheets with the schedule he was previously provided. He notices that on the 7th of March, the Russian was not present at the autopsy, according to the face sheet, but was listed on the schedule. The same for the 9th, which was the next scheduled autopsy. Again, not on the face sheet, but was scheduled to work. There was a second autopsy that also occurred on the 9th, and again, the Russian does not appear on the face sheet. On the 10th, the Russian was not on the schedule, nor did he appear on the face sheet for either autopsies that were performed on that day. On the 11th, he was on the schedule, but did not appear for either of the two autopsies that were scheduled. When in the hell did this guy ever work? Harout wondered. On the 12th of March, four autopsies took place. The Russian 
was listed as on duty for this date. However, once again, he had not signed off on any of the four autopsies that were performed during the day. Harald is beginning to think that maybe this guy just never signs off on any autopsy reports, and he becomes a bit disheartened. He finally reaches the documents pertaining to the date in question, March 13th. He sees that according to the schedule, the Russian was on duty. A day in which two autopsies took place. He then moves his eyes towards the bottom of the face sheet. He scans across the various names that have signed off on the bottom of the sheet and observes that this episode of Defense Diaries has come to a close. Join us on the next one to find out once and for all if the Russian was cutting a body open in Pittsburgh at the time that Thomas and Shirley Sherman were under attack. Hey guys, I'd be remiss if I didn't throw some thank yous out there. First and foremost, to my man D, who's back in town. It's been me? it's been a hot minute, dude. How about me? I'm glad you're here. Me too, buddy. I've been missing you, man. I've been missing you. I love you, man. Thank you for all you do, brother. Thank you. And thank you to Taras and Gak, who do all of our music. Those guys are phenomenal. And uh, we just wouldn't have the same show without their tunes. So thanks, guys. To Courtney, my daughter, who I love and adore, and Alex. Thank you guys so much for handling the socials and all of our graphic design work. And to my wonderful wife, Allison, who is currently upstairs struggling with our law practice to let me and Darren do this so that we can turn this thing into a monster. Finally, to our patrons, we adore you guys as always. I know I say that every time. And you know why I do that? Because he means it? Because I mean it. That's right. So we love you guys. Thank you for that support. It means the world to both Darren and I. It really, really helps us in so many ways that we can't even tell you how. But finally, and last but not least, to you, our beautiful, beautiful listeners who every week listen and then you come onto our socials and let us know you're there. That means so much to us. And you guys know that without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time.